recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Max lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Max lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today we're here with Karim Asfaruglu. He's the founder of Dark Source, a London based design studio driven by social and environmental values. Following his graduation from, I think that's Weimar University, Architectural Lighting Design MA, Kareem has worked at Spears and Major as a senior member of the creative team for eight years. Throughout his career, he has won several design awards, including Red Dot, Vox Juventa, PLDC, LAMP, and LIT. Kareem specializes in dark sky friendly lighting design for urban and, and, the, and the rural public realm. That's an interesting term, the rural public realm. In 2017, he was awarded with the title of Dark Sky Defender by the International Dark Sky Association for advocating for the importance of darkness through design. Some of his environmental lighting projects include the Plas Y. Brennan Outdoor Center. He's got some weird names in this thing. Prestine Dark Sky <laughs> Master Plan. Newport Dark Sky Master Plan. Claw... Can you say it for me, Kareem? Clog Jordan, Eco Village. Clog Jordan. Clog Jordan. These are these are too hard. Kareem, welcome to the show. John, how are you? Very <laughs> Embarrassing good. myself I, here. Uh, let me just say, my 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 Welsh pronunciation is just about as good as yours, Michael. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> oh man, that's those are tough ones. Like I lived in Ireland for a year, and there was some. That's tough, buddy. I don't know how you pronounce that stuff. Holy <laughs> mackerel! Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you. That's okay. That's okay. Um, you know, I, I'm going to take it right from the beginning and and just say, you know, why dark skies? What do you? There's obviously something emotional here for all of us. What is it for you, Karim? Well, that's a really good question. I, I suppose, you know, got to ask it to every single person because it starts with that individual response. Because um, some people, you know, uh, the astronomy element really speaks to them, whether it's protection of biodiversity. Um, I've always been very interested in nighttime because mm. I see nighttime as a realm rather than, you know, just a, a specific time in the day. Um, this is uh, a realm uh, we inhabit and, uh, you know, it's got its own rules. Um, and uh, I was always fascinated with, you know, darkness, hence the reason you can tell that's counterintuitive <laughs> to call mm -hmm. a light design practice dark source, but um, that kind of 
shows that passion towards darkness um, um, and uh, it's because you know this issue is not just only environmental it's also cultural hence the reason um, uh, as a lighting designer I'd like to see myself uh, relevant vital you know mm. we're not really doctors so if, if somebody's having a heart attack nobody's going to call a lighting designer so mm. I was hoping that would be the um, the way to make our practice and profession become more relevant to the modern times. You know, when I, when I think about the dark sky movement, you know, and I'm just going to say it because I have never said this on the show before, but I, I'm a dark sky advocate because of the Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. There is a different realm at night. There is something different going on at night. That's the best way I've heard it put. It's a different realm, John. Take it for John. You asked some questions, man. My mind is blown on that. I love that realm idea. I, well, no, I, I, I can only agree. And the big change in, in, in my life was the first time that I moved from the city into into the country, into the rural public realm mm. that Karim calls it, you know, and, and you realize that it's, it's not just a uh, it's not it's not just an, it's not an absence of light. There's something else going on here. And the, the, I mean, the things I've seen, we, you know, we, we moved from the centre of London. Uh, I grew up in the city, so I'd, I'd never lived in the, in the countryside. We'd enjoyed it at a weekend, of course. But the idea, you know, we moved to a farmhouse in the middle of the country. And the, the, the effect was incredible. I mean, what a change it made to the way that we, we, saw, we, we saw ourselves living in that place, that the dark wasn't just a place that you closed the front door of and you waited until you got light again, that the dark was actually something and that different place that had to be enjoyed. And also, I mean, what a scary place it can be. The first time we ever, I mean, this time of year, the first time we ever heard deer in, in, in the woodland that, that, that was at the back of the house. And they were sort of, you know, they were doing that belling thing where they're just howling at one another. And you go, what the hell's that? Well, that's the dark for you, my friends. That's, uh, I'm really enjoying the fact that you guys both actually uh, like the term the, um, the rural public realm. Because there is mm. an inherent... Um, condescending approach from the cities towards the uh, you know rural uh, areas where whether it's a lit you know bit of street or a, a small square um you know that is still a, a common circulation area that's public realm um and uh, you know it takes actually quite a bit of courage and strength to be able to be okay with the level of darkness um, where much of these communities actually prefer and um, so it's a clearly a contextual cultural uh, element to it as well um, and like john was saying it's funny because when i first moved to london that was in 2011 um nobody really told us about the the urban foxes that we have here <laughs> nighttime can be quite <laughs> so some of them actually um took refuge in our garden so you know it sounded like the clauses that I can describe is an old woman was getting murdered in our garden. And then what's that scream? It's actually urban foxes. <laughs> foxes. Wow. The, yeah. this idea of the, you know, and, and I just love the word realm. I think that's the best description um, because it's a, it's a world. There's, there's, there's forces and powers there that are, that are changing over as the dark descends. Um, the, you know, when you're, when you're designing for this from a lighting perspective, let's get technical a little bit here. 
what is the basis of this? You know, you have the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting that the IES and the IDA put out. I don't know if that's all 100% there. I feel like that's a like a white paper or something or like a direction document. What is it at the basis of this idea of lighting for darkness or preserving darkness or night restoration? What is it? What is the basis technically of it? What do you have to do? That's a great question. I suppose like any painter or any artist, canvas is the most important thing. So what darkness and the quality of darkness you have and the first aim should be to preserve it. Um, restore it if you can um, so the base is a great strength for any visual artist uh, you know whether it's a painter depicting the nighttime or it's a lighting designer working in in the night realm or the nightscape is you have to start with what you have uh, which is the the base canvas uh, as darkness and then put your layers accordingly and to be honest with you it's uh, more of you know more often I'm finding myself actually uh, it's just trying to go as minimal as possible. So trying to basically, um, you know, the best lighting is no lighting, you know, but, mm. you know, it ha there has to be a level of uh, light because, you know, this is the 21st century and uh, we have to be able to safely see where we're going. Um, but there is a threshold. And if we can, the lower that I can go um, without having to resort to high levels is the best way. And it's just multiple layers coming together to create an experience. What I'm trying to do with my work is not only try to create less bright precedents, but I'm also trying to create nice places that people would like to inhabit and spend time. And that's how we can ensure that there's social sustainability to this as well. Because last thing you want is to um, you know, go as low as possible, but still you know have results that are intimidating to people mm. uh, we just want to overcome that uh, you know that inherent fear of darkness that we have all have in ourselves as well shall i take a bit just 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 i mean just a, a thought a thought that just went across my mind there suddenly we're talking about the rural um realm and we so rarely talk about that we we, mm. we, we think about everything is in in the urban context um, and our, our our rural attitude is one that is that comes out of that urban context. But I wonder, Kerem, if if we can see a, a flip coming in that, that, because there is a danger here that we just abandon the city to its light. And we just yeah, oh, just go on and do it. You know, just just do it because actually all the important stuff is happening where nobody lives. Tiny little villages, little little village greens, because that's where the magic really happens. But are you are you hearing of any real sense of movement that 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 rural picture, that softness, that intimacy is 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 finding a way into the urban situation? Yes. Um, and I think that, you know, trajectory is actually that um, the, uh, the line of travel has come from actually the small communities in the rural context. They who are the people who made this sexy? All this talk about the dark skies, it was small communities, small groups of people coming together to do something about protecting their environment and dark skies theme became much more powerful through them. And now we're seeing, as you said, John, like, you know, Parts of Greater London Authority is considering some strategies to help to implement this. Bigger cities, we're seeing 
you know, massive multi-million uh, developments are considering this. And this is all thanks to, you know, the rural context and, you know, small communities actually making this become so big. Um, in that respect, uh, we owe a lot to the small communities, definitely. And I do think the ultimate uh, frontier is actually the cities because they are the big polluters. They are the big offenders when it comes to light pollution. And until they are really tackled, we have a lot of work to do. Mm. Michael, do you want something? Yeah, well, I'm, I, you know, it's, I, I, I was waiting for you because I, I, I felt there was a conversation between lighting designers there that I wanted to just see, that, you know, shop talk we, or I didn't want to disrupt it. But I, I have that in a minute. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so as it like I, I so what I do. So John's a de, on the design side. I'm a lighting distributor. So when I leave the office here, I go sell light fixtures, light bulbs to people. And it's an interesting different positions of the industry. What I see yeah, from my perspective, man. Yeah, you know what? I, I it's, it's getting a little bit nuts to be honest with you, but impressive. Uh, yeah, I'm having a big argument with Amazon right now because I actually sell a lot of stuff on Amazon too. So we're in a big fight, Amazon and us. But um, the that's a whole podcast unto itself. The uh, but you know I'm driving around at night now, and you know what I'm thinking to myself? I think the principle we've missed, or the area that is most fundamental in accomplishing you know responsible outdoor light at night i like that acronym john does too i know you roll on that's a nice acronym right like how do we name it properly it's so key um so we can restore darkness and preserve it which is the end result responsible outdoor light at night gives us this gift back i think we have to create outdoor light fixtures and regulate it very simply that you should not be able to see the light source. So when you're driving your vehicle down the road or you're walking down the street or you're looking across at the horizon, you should not be able to see the LED light source itself. And the problem with the sky glow in mind, this is what I've occurred to me. And on the highways and the glare and everything else that's happening is that if you look at that light fixture, or even if you're looking in that direction, Kareem, you can see the damn light source. You can see the LED array on the wall pack in the street light or whatever it is. And if we just made the law, you're not allowed to see the LED light source. You'll, you can only see the result of the light, Kareem. I think that is a fundamental change that I think would solve a lot of these problems. And then the color temperature, right? Then lower the color temperature down to 2200 Kelvin or 2700 Kelvin or something like that. And I don't see that anywhere. Have you encountered that? Is that something you like or where do you feel about that? Yeah, the visibility of the source is an important topic. And, uh, you know, we were just having a conversation, um, an email thread today with one of um, uh communities that I'm working with in Cumbria, the north of England, which is, which happens to have, uh, you know, some of the darkest skies in the, the UK context. Um, and they got some good precedents and we'd like to, you know, propagate, you know, uh, the, the bad and, the, you know, before and after, you know, what mm -hmm. was, what's the bad design, what's the good design so people can see it in a very clear context. And often with my job uh, works, I can also see is, um, 
sometimes the visibility of the source is also, um, you know, even if it's easy on the eye, uh, you can always never really almost capture it in, with the camera. Or uh, if you eliminate the source, uh, uh, you know, obviously you get the best lit effect for uh, mm -hmm. human eye yes. as well. Yes. However, you know, before we get there, there's so much that can be done in terms of, you know, the stuff that you mentioned, for example, the color temperature, the beam distribution, the intensity is a, another important topic. And, uh, you know, the way I look at it, this is, you know, there's a place for every single light fitting and manufacturer in this realm. Um, and hence the reason I'm always, uh, you know, interested in having broad, uh, you know, wide open arms and having as many players as possible in this because, uh, there are lots of places uh, where suitability is, you know, very accommodating, and and I'd like to see more manufacturers, uh, you know, actually, uh, you know, producing dark sky friendly lighting. And I don't necessarily see this source issue as the um, uh, make it or break it at this point. Maybe we get refined so much that ten years down the line, that's only thing that is really the greatest concern yes then that definitely there'll be a time to tackle that but before we get there there's a lot to improve and, and i and i think uh you know the visibility of the source is not terrible uh at this point but you know for example ulor there's a big question about upward light ratio and again um, a scheme can be environmentally friendly if it has you know tiny bit of upward lighting it's just about what are we proposing here the the ground picture is important what's the overall composition if you manage to mitigate you know light pollution massively um so maybe there's a place for having some sources visible for example so i think it's a bit of a push and pull um and i think sometimes people really shoot themselves in the, the, the foot by just really uh, trying too hard to comply with you know, extreme dark sky friendly measures, which might be challenging as well, because we're also trying to have some creative freedom for the designers and people as well. Karim, I'm glad you said that, that creative design freedom. Um, I'm having a little bit of a down on, on science at the moment because science is getting in my way. <laughs> and I find myself and my client talking about the emotional effect of light because scientists hate that because they can't count it they don't know where it comes from they don't they haven't got a they haven't got an emotion meter so they, they can't measure it and one of i've always felt that one of the one of the issues that we have around out, you know, outdoor lighting in the is that so much of it is wrapped up in um lighting guides uh lighting recommendations mm. british standards uh anyone's standards yeah sure Whereas we know that there are things that can be done and there isn't a standard in the world that would approve it. But when you look at it, you go, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. And for, for you, I mean, Karim, to what extent is working, deciding to run away to the country or Wales, as we might call it, means that you actually get out of, out of the way of, of, of people who, who care about standards? Because I sense that there's a little bit more freedom and there's a little bit more, there's a little bit more sort of room for delicacy and manoeuvre when you get out into the rural areas. Because people say, well, I don't want a lot, but I want it to look really, really nice. And you go, I can do that. Just, just yeah, don't, ask, ask, don't, don't ask anybody to get their light meter out. Mm. I think you've just actually hit the nail on the head and uh, probably also reflects on one of the strengths we have in the UK is our standards are uh, not you know their guidelines even if it, even you know british standards would start with these are guidelines and 
you, you can prefer taking them to the heart. Um, and uh, the, what's most important is it gives the designers or engineers a language to talk so we can understand each other when we refer to, you know, the X standard, Y standard. So we know what baseline where communication starts. But often what I find is I always try to go as low as possible. So it requires a lot of negotiation with the uh, local authorities um, and the county councils, whatnot. So it's just... At the end of the day, these people are responsible from other people, you know, um, whether it's urban or, uh, you know, uh, rural public realm. So you have to give a level of confidence and trust in them that you can afford to have low light levels while still ensuring safety. And that's my job to negotiate that, uh, you know, communicate it between the parties um, and try to secure the best deal we can get. Um, and argue, you know, further reductions after curfew, whatnot. But as long as it is reasonable. So one of the best ways, uh, you know, over the course of the years that I found works best is just to implement a test. You know, in Christine, for example, one of those many difficult Welsh uh, names that you were struggling mm. with, Michael. It's, <laughs> a, it's an aspiring uh, a town. It, hopefully, we will submit our application in the, in the new year. We're hoping to become a dark sky community, which is going to be the first one in Wales. Why, why Wales is so important is 18% of Wales is under protected dark skies. This is, uh, you know, mm. one of the, the biggest, uh, uh, you know, percentage of dark skies per country. Um, and dark sky community is not a concept that yet is uh, in Wales. There are lots of, you know, reserves, parks, sanctuaries, but community is the ultimate uh, precedent that we're trying to establish because it's towns, and people need to get from A to B, still need to live their lives. Um, and, uh, you know, there, like, for example, I live in North London, right? And uh, over the lockdown, they just basically refurbished all of our uh, street lighting where we had really nice, uh, pleasant, warm, uh, white and soft illumination. Just all over the course of a night, it just became white LEDs, very crisp, very, uh, very uh, glary, uh, very bright. And nobody ever consulted us. And uh, but the funny thing is, for example, I don't know how it works in the U.S., but in the U.K., for example, if your if your neighbor is uh, you know building up a shed or like extension, you would get a letter from the county council saying mm -hmm. or the local sure. authority saying, yeah, sure. "Would you want to comment on this? Like, do you have a yeah, problem sure. with this? Why would I? I will never ever see that. I will never experience that. Let that person have their shed." Interestingly, nobody consults you yeah. when it's about lighting, and it's such well, an invasive. That, I'm going to interrupt you. That's because I'll give you an example. Regulations you're talking about. Okay. The vast majority of street lighting in the entire world used to be 2200 Kelvin. It was HPS. Okay. And we designed yeah. towards HPS. We used HPS. The CRI was crap. The color was, real, was actually environmentally quite friendly. We didn't even know that. Um, somehow it's the color of fire itself is actually the best light to use at night environmentally, as funny enough as that is. But um, you know what? People just said, we're not using that color anymore. We're going to use a totally different color. But the regulations didn't say anything about that. You know what I'm saying? Like, hang on, we were using this color for years and years. John, I'm going to go, go, John. But I mean, how come, where are the regulations when you need them, right? Like, the, the, John, go ahead. <laughs> um i've always I've, I've always taken a rather more cynical view uh to uh to, to the economics of street lighting mm. because um 
the reason that we were using sodium lighting is because it was the cheapest source available. Mm-hmm. The cheapest source available before that was the mercury, high-pressure mercury lamp, which was an ice blue, remember. Mm. And occasionally yeah. you'd see some fluorescent tubes, remember. And before that, we didn't hardly had any light at all. Okay. It, it has always been the case. And almost look at, it, it's almost, we look back in fond memory of light sources where we couldn't tell the color of a motor car. Mm. <laughs> because it was because it was gentle and it was the, it was the color of romance no it wasn't it was brown <laughs> and all that all, all that's happened all that's happened is that we've gone we've gone again for the for, for the cheapest mm. that we can get and yeah, the problem that we've got now we have i've always i'm on a soapbox guys if you can't notice that we we had very very good light sources and we had some average to appalling light fittings mm. and for my friends out there there were some very good light fittings as well but mm. generally speaking the magic was all in the light source mm. you bring in the led you have no idea mm. you don't you have no idea whether you've got got a fitting that's got a decent led in it is or it's got a piece of of, of tat in it mm. if you buy cheap you have a 4,000 to 6,000 Kelvin mm. cheap LED. These local authorities that we've got here think that they've got a 25-year installation. It's never going to work. No, come on. But it like, is going to think... be rubbish. Well, I mean... Magic, yeah. Magical yeah. thinking, Michael. Magical yeah, thinking. Magical and, thinking. It's, and they've got a contract, which, of course, the, the company that no longer exists will honour yeah, for sure. in a few years' time yeah. when they all fall apart. Sorry, that, that's... A, that's Kerem, I'm sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's absolutely. This is the best forum to you know really vent vent out as like, yeah, sure. um No, I I for my sins, I I loved sodium. Um, and uh, as you said, that there's a nostalgic quality to it because sure it you know, much of my childhood, um, you know, street lighting that I've ever recognized was just basically sodium. It was the the industrial reality becoming the public reality because, as you said, it was very. Um, reliable and efficient so like you know not mm. only it was cheap it was also consistent in the mm-hmm. quality we, as you mentioned we didn't have the same diversity as we have with the leds and of course the leds coming to power um because i remember in you know early beginnings of 2010 when i was just you know starting off as a junior lighting designer i we used to specify all sorts of uh, pro- products and you know um, fluorescents or uh, metal halides where be, sure. if you needed to have the projection and intensity leds couldn't do that at that time i clearly remember that the led was an interior lighting tool that was kicking off but then over the course of only four or five years that the leds took over massively and they captivated our imagination and still they are the most versatile lighting tool we ever came up with but maybe the one of the problems when it first came into picture because the uh, lumens per watt that you can get was such an important thing for people um, and longevity was you know unmatched and uh, kind of we dropped everything and just like moths we got mm-hmm. you know drawn to light but now we're understanding the lumens per watt is not the the issue and it comes at a cost uh, we do understand the even going for warmer yeah. temperatures when there's a slight deficiency which is we're talking about now these days five percent it used to be 20 percent, but like it's getting much better um and now uh, everybody's understanding oh it comes at a massive environmental cost and impact um and people are factoring that in um what could think about about the uh, a couple of other things that sodium we were talking about also like you're right as well like how we now understanding michael that the sodium was such a great source in terms of not only color temperatures also the 
uh, the spectrum as well. Like, no, now we're understanding. Mm, there's no blue. There's out. no blue in, in it. There's no, <laughs> yeah. there, there's no blue. Yeah. And also we're understanding now there are lots of insects uh, or species that are actually, uh, they hate high CRI because that's our luxury to have you sure. know, all these vibrant colors at night. The, sure. the nature doesn't, you know, give a damn about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, it's about us getting the, what we need with the perfect compromise for, you know, all stakeholders, including the, um, the biodiversity. But I'm going to also quickly go back to British standards where I was just going to say here, we're lucky enough to British standards are actually are good at accommodating, uh, allowing you to go as low as you can in comparison to some other standards. Um, so had you been, for example, in Germany or, or uh, Denmark, uh, you know, you'd be stuck with, you can't really negotiate the, the standards. That's very difficult. It is what it says in the textbook and you have to follow it. But here we have, have the luxury of making arguments and agreeing with people and saying, this is the best for our case and let's go with it. And it allows us to go as low as possible in comparing to you, you know, European standards uh, as well. Um, for example, European standards don't really tend to like when there's mixed traffic use, for example, cyclists combined with pedestrians and vehicular traffic. Immediately they go like, no, you can't drop a certain level. Uh, so British standards still, there's room for negotiation as long as it's a slow moving traffic as it's uh, you know a single carriageway or if it's like you know pedestrian use only so you can there's room for subjective uh, you know uh, interpretation if you will one last thing is i was uh, suggesting the test element to really prove to people what you're trying to do is with pristine we've done a test and left it there for uh, a couple of months and we just basically invited people to come back to their come back to us with their thoughts and not only the large majority actually, you know, subscribed to it and loved it. It also, they felt they were consulted and they felt like they were part of this journey. Nothing was imposed on them. That's my mm -hmm. piece. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, like, I just have so many things written here. I'm going to pick one here. Okay. So cap that I, when you were speaking there, I wrote down six different things, but I'm going to start with captivating our imagination. I think the darkness restoration movement is beginning to captivate the public's imagination too now, actually. I, I, you see it everywhere you go. It's the, the momentum of the movement is getting more and more powerful. And, um, you know, and so what you see is that humans can change extremely quickly. This idea that humans are so slow to change and da, 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 that's all from people who are bitter and resentful that nobody bought their damn product or bought their service or something. You know, it's like you're crap. Nobody bought your crappy service. But you know what? In the last 20 years of my life, I've seen people, a lot of things change super quickly, actually. From, uh, you know, the entire province of Ontario having HPS to it almost all having LED except for the city of Toronto. That's a lot of infrastructure change really, really fast in 10 years. From going from landlines and fax machines to computers and smartphones and artificial intelligence, humans will adapt very quickly. We need to captivate the imagination, Kareem. We need to, uh, we need to make it clear that the, these things that we're doing at night are offensive to the realm. They're insulting to that that place of darkness. And that doesn't mean that we don't want responsible outdoor light at night, but that we have to elevate that priority. And I think if the industry can do that, if we can do that, it's gonna set off the biggest lighting design boom in the history of the world. Everybody's gonna start to buy into this. And the key point that I'm gonna add on this, John, is that 
if we change focus away from climate change and energy efficiency and lumens per watt and bean counters, bean counters, bean counters, and we move over towards darkness restoration, dark skies, light pollution abatement, we'll be in the realm that we can actually affect best. And we'll give them all the energy savings, all the lighting controls, all the circadian and climate change that we can because darkness restoration is about energy savings. It's about using less and using less, not just by lumens per watt, but also by putting the appropriate amount of light where it belongs and controlling it. And I think that's where the focus changes. That's where that captivation of the imagination comes from, Karim. And I think we can do it. Yeah, I think there's a great appetite for dark skies um, than it's ever been. But equally, we find ourselves in a funny place in time as a society or civilization. Uh, we've never consumed more light than we are doing right now. We've, mm-hmm. We're producing and consuming at a rate that is un- that was un- unimaginable uh, to if you compare it, like you know, to what's what was happening. Not back possible. Then. Not possible. With yeah. Javon, we couldn't have had, our electricity. One of the things that I always say is not just the the cost of the LEDs being cheap. It's also the circuit capacity that we opened up. Like I don't know how the electrical works in Britain, but you have like 15 amp, 20 amp circuits in Canada. Well, now guess what? You can put a double, triple bullhorn on your outdoor pole and two lights on each horn go in every direction. When before you only had one 400 watt HPS, and now you got That's five, so six true. LED light fixtures. The capacity of the circuits allows you to put more lights as well. It's uh, I it's not just energy, yeah. So true. It's there's something the... called the. Go, go on, John. No, no, okay. I just very briefly, if you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there is, there are so many um, directions that this is being pulled in, and and Michael, I think you're right. You know, it, it's this idea, this idea that that we've that we have to legislate against the thing that we need to legislate against. And we haven't got the imagination to realize that if we just do the things that we want to do, we get to that place, not by accident, because mm. we're trying to produce something which is, which is which is magical and mystical and safe at the same time. Mm-hmm. And for that, we do not need loads and loads of lumens splattered around all over the place. Mm-hmm. At the same time, living in the same village, there will be that person who will put the LED floodlights in their garden. And they're not lighting their, not only lighting their garden, they're lighting their next door neighbor's garden. They're lighting a, a, a field that's a mile away because, hey, because they can. Mm. So the, there's a kind of a yin and a yang here going on. And I, what, Karen, what, one of the things I wanted to ask you, so I'll ask you now, is <laughs> where, where where is the pull on this one? Are you being... Are you being called in by community representatives first, or are you, or, or is it actually the local authorities who are saying we need to do something better here? And and because I know I know that most of the, most of the local authorities no longer have any street lighting or or any lighting engineers at all. So yeah. so they're having it's, to they're having to look to the industry. Yeah, Go on. true. Uh, it- it's a mixture. Um, it actually started as, uh, you know, uh, the bottom up, uh, which is the grassroots of, you know, working with communities who wanted to achieve something. And by just uh, the, uh, you know, 
the sheer goodwill of starting, uh, you know, advising them of like how to mobilize themselves. Because this is a lot about community uh, building and community mobilization. Because yeah. you need, wherever you are, whether you're in a, you know, very remote town with small population or it's just a big city, you just need to have the headcount. You need to build up your, uh, you know, team. Um, and uh, that's why what's so beautiful about this moment is it's just you cannot be everybody and you need resources. You need other people to feed into that. And that also, um, you know, refers to what you were saying, Michael, which I found very interesting is that there's so many layers to this topic. And, uh, you know, whether we were talking about what is the, you know, the insect uh, population decline, whether it's like, you know, um, the impact on human health, uh, but I find it that depending on which authority or the community that I'm working with, that just tweaking that language, depending on the priorities of the, the job, it always works the mm -hmm. best. And more and more I'm finding the local authorities and counties, um, they are responding to, as you said, the, um, the carbon emissions and the energy reduction element. Uh, much more than uh, mm -hmm. other things, you know, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean they are completely discarding what the other mm -hmm. elements are. It is an easy win for them that they can flip over very easily because there's mm -hmm. a narrative attached to it. They can immediately say we've reduced, you know, 10 tons of CO2 by just dimming our lights. It's just as simple like that. And the beauty of light pollution is just in comparison to the other types of pollutions like air or chemical, it's the easiest one to rectify. You switch it off mm -hmm. and it's, it's, gone. it's gone and the improvement yeah. rate is imminent yeah but it's an enormous problem kareem light pollution and then it's getting worse and you know it's interesting i i actually it you know i mean if you happen to stroll onto that online realm called twitter okay which i'm warning you against okay i, I you know I, I i do it every now and then a couple times a week i go on and i look at different things and it seems like everybody's in some kind of chaotic argument where you know if you don't agree with me you're an idiot what i found is actually that most people are reasonable and most people will listen you know what i'm saying that's very true you know, and they'll they'll hear you out and they may not agree with you. They may not decide. They may not be able to be persuaded or convinced by you. But it's your obligation to persuade and convince and not to threaten and attack and insult. And I like the darkness restoration movement or the night rest preservation movement, whatever we want to call this, dark skies, to, to remember that we want to avoid politics like the plague. We don't want this to be a conservative issue or a liberal issue or a labor issue or a democrat issue or republican issue we want to avoid all that and i think if we aligned as an industry karim that you know what if you do the darkness restoration when you're outside or you do dark skies you actually get all that other stuff too at the most yeah, effective that's... way to get it that's so <laughs> accurate that's bang on in the sense of um you know it's there's uh you know so many layers uh but i think the communication is the key mm -hmm. how are you opening up to that portal is the key because i've seen so many communities who were also dabbling in trying to do something but the uh the communication was a bit harsh and you know maybe it didn't allow uh the framework to grow so mm -hmm. maybe it was looking from a very narrow point of just uh, astronomy or just, you know, biodiversity. Yeah. So you have to really open your arms. But that's, again, why I see the key strength of the small communities is coming from the fact that they can come together 
and mobilize very quickly because mm. they don't need to mm -hmm. negotiate with the local authority to the same extent where you're in a city, you have so many uh, stakeholders and just one borough or council. So like, you know, uh, it is very difficult to push the boundaries because it's uh, also, you know, you have to have a bureaucratic finesse as well. And as I said, look, goodwill goes a long way. Um, my experience mm -hmm. is, for example, any job you're working on, there's definitely an industrial estate, whether it's a small uh, town or is it a, a big city or whatnot, there'll be always some uh, uh, big estates that require or consume more light than you know an average street does. Um, so there, there are thresholds where you'll have to find the best way of approach and communicating. And what I often find is just like, you know, often these people didn't really think or knew about the, the sure. um, you know, negative impacts of light pollution, or they, they didn't even know that they were causing light pollution. But that's 10 out of nine, I would say there'll be one out of 10, there'll be that really difficult guy. That well, you, you, you know what, you before, John, before, I just want to comment and then I'll yeah. throw it over to you. Um, but you know, like he, the fact is that all you lighting designers out there, the Restoring Darkness podcast is only two years old. Okay, the International Dark Sky Association has been around for a long time. Okay, but they just started to cooperate with the lighting industry three years ago or something like that. The lighting industry and the International Dark Sky Association used to hate each other's guts for decades. Yeah, you I, know? I think there was, but there could have been, there could be a good reason for that. And that is, it comes back to something that we said right at the beginning, and that's that's about glare and brightness and using those lovely metal halide lamps and those lovely sun lamps and all of those. Mm. Hey, they came with, with, with one huge package of light. And the, mm. you know, if, a, if a lamp is as big as your fist, there's only so much control you can, you can put into that. Mm. But if we've now got something that is tiny, it's mm. that big, you know, and you can hide it. Mm -hmm. That becomes a conversation that's worth having with, between, between the people who want to keep the, the skies dark and the people who want to make lighting safe for people. So maybe that, that I actually yeah, that, I actually don't think they want to make lighting safe. Okay, I'll, I'm going to comment on that. Like I've talked, I've done a lot then. of podcasts, <laughs> and I like I liked your your boss is Mark Major, right? Or one of the partners at your firm is Mark Major, right, Karim? No, it used to be. I used to work for Spears and Major. Yeah. Ah, okay. So that I just was, interviewed Mark. Yeah. I just interviewed Mark, and he did. <laughs> he was talking about the same thing as as the the canvas, and right, like just because you want lighting to be safe doesn't mean you get the paint off the canvas, buddy. Like that's kind of part of the argument here that the lighting industry has introduced new technologies that do things quite a bit differently, John, and. They may they may not be violations of the regulations, but they're certainly not in the spirit of good lighting. And we need to convince the lighting industry of that. Like the I, lighting I, industry what, needs to be convinced of yes. that. I, I was just going to say before I was interrupted. Cut off. The thing that the LED has given to us is flexibility. We can mm -hmm. do so much more mm -hmm. now. Um, and I am wondering, and, and I'm, I'm all sorts of other conversations that's just floating around. Conversations that we've had with people where they've been saying it was the opportunity to take a to, to take a small urban space and light it in a different way so that people could see what we were doing. Mm. And Karen, that's what you're saying. And mm -hmm. I, I th let me say, some of the photographs on your website are the best examples that I've ever seen of what we are talking about here about being able to control light and keep it tight. And it looks so good. 
And mm. I wonder whether we need to, you know, there's, there's, we're in the, you know, we're just getting into the winter. We've got all kinds of activity going on ar- around community activity on keeping people warm, finding safe spaces for them. I wonder if we've actually got a, 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 in, in potential here, a sort of a guerrilla lighting approach that if we can find communities who are prepared to work with companies who might be prepared to sort of take on uh, a, a smallish kind of job, almost a, a, as, as a test piece for them, as a demonstration piece for them because they can't afford a showroom. Mm. Whether we mm. can actually achieve some of this lighting in a, in a way which is not commercial, but it's meant to be permanent. Mm. You know, a whole new, I a think... whole new approach to it. Mm, interesting. That's interesting. Look, sounds fantastic, and uh, that was one of the reasons why um, I left working for a commercially successful uh, brand um, and tried to look at this uh, from the grassroots approach. How have you mm. come off your high horse and actually look at the things? You know, look mm-hmm. upwards and try to mobilize these people and. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, one of the, the inherent DNAs of Dark Source, uh, my lighting design practices, that is driven by social and environmental values. The visual is important, but it's not the most important. Visual mm. comes later. And um, because we've been just, you know, we've been part of the problem until now. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've been looking at lighting as a, as a means of enhancing wealth and adding further value to the the uh, properties or, or spaces that can afford to throw money into the business or, you know, and, and only then they were deemed valuable enough to actually be blessed with this profession. But now we're seeing a serious shift uh, in terms of not only cultural, but also moral. Uh, and as you say, John, it mm. makes perfect sense. And that's why I, uh, you know, when I left my previous practice, I went to, I've done a small soul search for myself and, my wife was very committed and said, like, you know, look, why don't you do your thing? Because you're clearly having an existential crisis. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and, and I went to uh, Africa, Gambia, uh, to deliver um, a training session for 30, 40 local electricians, training them about solar power and lighting design. And then we worked together to deliver lighting uh, for a, a community library that was 24-7 accessible. Um, so because kids don't really have any uh, luxury of having studying spaces or whatnot. And that completely transformed my approach towards design and you know my individual uh, perspective of, of things as well. Because on the very, very last day when we installed everything, it was such a fascinating experience working with these brilliant young men and women they were amazing like you know how how talented they were but they never had the opportunity to rise up to this point nobody ever came brought that knowledge and they just basically devoured that knowledge and they went Mm. above and beyond and uh, all these electricians came up with some amazing skills Uh, on the very very last day when we're uh, taking the final photos of that uh, project which won several awards later uh, and uh, what was very interesting is We've done the photos and we stepped outside. Obviously, it was a solar-based uh, lighting scheme. Um, and the power cuts are very common in the town. And we realized the power had gone out in town. And none of the kids studying in the library didn't even realize it. And that was my first-hand <laughs> wow. experience after 10 wow. years as a designer that wow. how imminent 
design can improve lives. And I've never had that touch when I'm working with really, you know, luxurious, prestigious brands or like places that will be beyond closed doors that maybe only the elite will experience. That means nothing to me now. And mm. this is why I would encourage all designers who, you know, have the, the able mind, mm. the able body, you know, go and help your communities and mobilize mm. them. And you will find, you know, it will reward you down the line, which is what's happening with dark mm. sources, uh, you know, portfolio and reputation is that we're not looking at this from the uh, client and value perspective. We're looking mm. at this about, you know, how do we help the, the community and how do we, you know, put, uh, take their hand through this and make them achieve what they want to do, not the designer's ego here. This mm -hmm. is about listening to people, understanding and accommodating them. Um, and uh, there was one more thing that I would like to also touch on, Michael, you were saying about the uh, IDA and the Lighting Designers Association and whatnot. And uh, as a, a person who's always been friendly, both with the lighting community and IDA, and I still intend to manage it that way. But I think it is true uh, in the sense of I think neither of these communities were ever right to come to table and understand that they need to cooperate because I'd argue that large majority of lighting designers still to this day i see lots of precedents i don't think even if they're promoting themselves as environmentally friendly i think it's not there yet but the culture is definitely as over overview of understanding what anti-light pollution or what light pollution does there's a general consensus but i wouldn't say the quality of work is uh, across the board and i think the in the same way idea was um they they've recently changed their motto and they're saying now we're not gonna let the perfect get in the way of the good and that's a very important change of culture because they are ready to in increase their area of influence and try to get as many people on board as possible rather than only focusing on perfect conditions, perfect, you know, uh, collaborations. They're opening their arms and there now we're seeing way more uh, collaborative uh, effort going in and people are trying to leap further collectively than they individually can. But maybe it was for the best that, you know, in the past, maybe these communities were meant to be a bit reserved. Maybe the time wasn't right. But as John was saying, the technology is right. The culture is right. Everybody's, uh, you know, uh, thinking and knowing the, the actual facts and thinking uh, quite similarly. We've never been closer to each other, each other than we are ever now. I'm also talking about, you know, within the Dark Skies movement, there are lots of really prominent figures like scientists, you know, environmentalists, mm -hmm. sure. uh, researchers, uh, physicists. Previously, they would have been anti-light, period. Uh, but now they're also, as much as we're informed, they're also informed that is not possible unless you want to, you know, cast people to a dystopia. So we'll have mm -hmm. to work together to find the right balance. Uh, and can I just add on the tail end sure. of that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, th I think we've all the time we have to we have to look to see where the pressure points are, and to see where if those pressure pressure points can be used to our advantage. And we've got a pressure point in the UK, and it is very much a, a rural situation, Karen, because it's it's all about bats. Yeah, it's not just about dark skies; it's about bats and small mammals and even plants and flora. We're being told that we've got to do less and less and less on one hand. But on the other hand, we're still being told that we've got to put good quality lighting in. Mm -hmm. So it's not on one hand, you say the regulations say we can't use any light. But now you're telling us we've got to use some light. Mm. So somewhere in that little space, mm 
possibly is somewhere where we can go and say, this is an answer for you. And it's an answer maybe that you that you wouldn't expect to have seen before, because mm. this is not a, this is not an answer that any of the the technologists would have considered. Mm. But we can do this, yeah. and we we need to get those examples out there as as quickly and as many of them as we can. Mm. And I think one thing you said there is really powerful to me is um, there's always you know how it is, John. Like there's always a bit of an uh, kind of uh, I don't know would you say argument that you know there's the designers and the engineers and they just like you know look down on each other it's just mm -hmm. one of them is like beautifying the things the engineers like you don't know what you're doing because you're just looking at this from a visual perspective embellishment perspective where the designers are you guys don't have the design sensibility but interestingly i uh you know uh with dark source and my journey uh, i had really great respect for engineers uh than i ever had as a as a designer in the sense of being Having to work with the limited layer is such an important uh, power if you know how to actually get into that. Because Dark Skies movement comes with lots of restrictions. Like we all know that the uplit trees look really beautiful, but trees don't like it. And then you can't do it because, <laughs> you know, that's the oldest trick in the book. Every tree looks beautiful when it's uplit with, you know, uh, uplashes, but you can't be doing that. And you have to stick to those principles. We're shut it off at 10 o'clock. <laughs> well, you can't like, shut you it know, off. Your... Like, don't don't run it all night long. You know, like that's part of the problem. Is it's like you know the it gets dark here at four o'clock, and so the guy's got his trees lit up on the front lawn. It looks great. Well, shut it down at eight thirty or nine o'clock. What do you need it running all night long for? You know, that's the other issue with all that. You know. Yeah. Well, like here's the other thing is also like you know when you have limited room for maneuvers, um, and it can be quite crippling for a designer because. The you watch your the amount of layers that you're used to is like you know you'll have to reconsider it whether it's you can't be doing this or you, you'll have to consider measures such as as you said switch it off after a certain time you know you you have to come up with aggressive techniques but I think you know what I found very liberating is the amount of uh, you know how liberating that it can as well be if you respect those core principles and in you know some capacity and always show a sensible reasonable approach towards trying to find the best compromise here and people will find it actually uh, it is very uh, rich and it's very mm. it's got lots to offer it's very diverse it's not like you know it's just two-dimensional that's not the reality and i think uh, designers will need to also improve upon that as well they'll need to work with less to appreciate more if you see what i mean i love your call to return to the commons this is a tragedy of the commons what we're talking about the 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 light pollution and i love your call away from the siren you know the the you know the exclusive project where you you know you're made to feel so great that you're involved in this space that only elite people go to or something like that and then John saying, well, why don't we return to the small town? Why don't we use a small town as a showroom for our product like, or something, some way to go back to the people and, and this idea of persuasion and convincing and working. Like you said, I don't fight with electrical engineers either. I usually respect what they do. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't do that job. But I just love that, that idea. And I think we need to stay on that idea that, that we have a responsibility to persuade people. People do not have a responsibility yeah. to do what we tell them to do. 
um, as an industry or as a movement or even politicians. You got to convince people. That's your job, actually. And you do that with facts, with honesty, with dialogue, admitting when you're wrong and when you've made a mistake. And and I think you know. And I think we can, it's a good place to call it. Um, you know what? We do that by admitting we're wrong. Maybe is the number one when we make a mistake. And the lighting industry has made a lot of mistakes. And I have made it sold a ton of light polluting fixtures. Okay, I am raising my hand right now. I am a light polluter. Okay, I am, was part of the problem, and I made a lot of money selling outdoor light fixtures that were five thousand Kelvin and light polluting and everything else. But I'm here to admit that I was wrong in that time. And I think we, we now know that we can change and we can do better. Karim, any final thoughts before we, we close it out? Yeah, I think you paved the road nicely. I think we didn't know a large majority of the what was causing light pollution, what its impacts were. But now we know it. And we still have an idea about the, how severe the situation is. And like, for example, satellite imaging cannot really detect, uh, you know, uh, it's not very sensitive towards blue light, but now we're understanding and lots of people working on that in terms of like coming up with some countermeasures and stuff. So the situation, we are only understanding the severity of the situation and we didn't really connect insects, bats, whatever, uh, with the, uh, you know, impact on biodiversity or pollinators, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was just, uh, you know, only known within small circles, but now we know, know and understanding it uh, a bit better. We have no excuse uh, that, you know, that we can keep the way that we used to be. And, and as you said, it is okay to, you know, change. It's okay to adapt to things and it's okay to have made mistakes in the past, as long as we don't keep doing them. And, uh, thanks for, you know, giving me this platform. It was lovely chatting with you guys as well. I really enjoyed this chat. Our pleasure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> His name, and I'm about to butcher the last part of it, but is Karim asked for, asked for a room. Can you say it, Karim? <laughs> <laughs> that was close enough though. Okay. And his company is Dark Source, and you can check him out at dark-source.com. He's also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and Facebook, at Dark Sourced with a D on the end. Karim is first and last name. You can look him up on LinkedIn, and Instagram is at Dark Source, and you've made it to the end here. Like I always say on all the podcasts I do, we don't have listeners. John and I just have colleagues that don't do podcasts. So thanks for spending some time with us today. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. <laughs> Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.